Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. My guest is Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone and author of The Management of Savagery. As many people know, Max Blumenthal was recently arrested, charged with assault, uh, stemming from an incident that occurred five months ago at the Venezuelan embassy when activists inside uh, were there at the invitation of the Venezuelan government, uh, holding on to the embassy in protest of the U.S.-backed coup after Venezuelan diplomats uh, were forced to leave. Max has been doing uh, extensive reporting on the U.S.-backed coup, and this arrest was widely seen by many of us as retaliation for that reporting. Now there is a new development in that case, and Max is here to discuss it with us. Max, welcome to Pushback. What is the latest with your case? Uh, the charges by the U.S. government in the case of the U.S. versus Max Blumenthal have been completely dropped. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've been vindicated, as I've always said. I was completely innocent. These are bogus charges concocted by the Venezuelan opposition to persecute uh, their critic and to use law enforcement uh, as a tool of revenge. Um, the charges against Benjamin Rubenstein, who was going to be my co-defendant, were also dropped. Uh, the government realized that must have realized that it had no case. Uh, in addition, uh, we've learned that the Secret Service uh, mysteriously disappeared its call logs from the May 8th uh, night of the incident in question. And so the um, federal prosecutor verbally confirmed that uh, those call logs um, basically of the police on the scene uh, didn't exist anymore, uh, which is very mysterious and very notable. Um, and it either suggests that, you know, they just weren't professional, um, that you know, five months later after the incident, when my arrest took place, they had been destroyed as part of procedure or there was some sort of cover up going on. Uh, but in any case, uh, we had massive amounts of exculpatory evidence and the complainant, who is a obviously a liar and was used um, to defame me, um, who personally defamed me, uh, had no evidence at all. And so the case was completely dropped before my first status hearing, which was to have been, I think, on December 12th. Not after, though. You were taken from your home and held in jail for 36 hours. Uh, this got a lot of attention. And it's interesting. You mentioned the Secret Service call logs. Can you explain more about the significance of that? Yeah, I mean, I'll get into the, the incident and, and everything that went on around the embassy in a minute. But basically, um, you know, during during the food delivery in which uh, me and Benjamin Rubenstein participated, um, you know, in which, you know, I intended to document as a journalist, but I also was participating. We had uh, Ben's brother, Alex Rubenstein, is a Gray Zone contributor and Anya Parampil, who's part of the gray zone inside the embassy. And uh, they were, you know, surrounded by a violent mob of right wing hooligans who were trying to starve them out and deprive them of water and sanitary supplies. And so as, you know, an editor and a friend, I saw it as my job to get that food to them, uh, along with Ben and a number of other activists and concerned people um, in a totally nonviolent fashion. 
And the Secret Service was on the scene for the whole time. The Secret Service police operating under the auspices of the State Department. They, uh, I, 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 I personally saw them. I personally encountered them there. Um, they should have had uh, body cam footage of it, and they should have had call logs in addition um, you know, the call to the ambulance that was made by the complainant where she made this false charge that we had assaulted her uh, was apparently made by the Secret Service. Um, but, you know, discussions of the incident between Secret Service officers should have been recorded in the call logs. And these all mysteriously disappeared. Um, so one theory is that the I mean, it was obvious to anyone outside the embassy It was obvious to me. Uh, if you went down there for one day, but if you really participated in this, whether you were inside the embassy or outside, it was obvious that the Secret Service, um, because they had no legal authority to remove uh, the Embassy Protection Collective, the peace activists inside the embassy, that they were using this violent mob of seedy uh, right-wing hooligans from the Venezuelan diaspora as a kind of proxy force to do what they couldn't do, which is to prevent food from getting inside the embassy, to intimidate and menace peace activists. Um, the mob was freely allowed to assault people um, and to threaten people. And uh, that may have come out through the actual calls and communications between Secret Service officers. So that that's one theory. But beyond that, you know, the complainant was initially unable to identify me in a sort of photographic lineup she was given. It was pretty obvious she was being coached. Um, the one witness to the incident or the supposed witness um, whose name is still under a protective order, so I can't name him. This is a guy who was convicted for cutting fraudulent checks a few years ago. So he was going to be impeached probably. Um, and then beyond that, we had just piles of exculpatory evidence because it's a, this is a false claim. Um, so I, I, I actually you know, thought that the government was going to try to take this all the way because it's a very political case. Um, but obviously their, their case was so weak that they couldn't even get to the first status hearing. What do we know overall about the level of cooperation between the Venezuelan opposition and when we say the opposition here, we mean the, the, the elements of the, the far right elements of the Venezuelan opposition, because the Venezuelan opposition as a whole is not homogenous. There are many different tendencies. But the one that the Trump administration is trying to install in Venezuela and the ones who were harassing the embassy protectors in Washington, what do we know about their level of coordination and cooperation? Well, it was funny the day before I was hauled out of my house at nine in the morning by a team of DC cops uh, threatening to break my door down, who had been told in the arrest warrant for some reason that I was armed and dangerous. Um, I don't know, maybe the, the pen is indeed mightier than the sword, um, but th there's just a very bizarre designation. But the day before of that, that that took place, uh, the Gray Zone published a piece by Leonardo, Leonardo Flores of Code Pink about how USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, had diverted money under orders from the Trump administration uh, that was initially intended to assist Central American migrants in Central America um, into the pockets of Juan Guaido's team in Washington, D.C., led by his fake ambassador, Carlos Vecchio. 
And so basically the U.S. government had begun officially and openly paying the salaries of this uh, fake ambassadorial retinue who controlled uh, no institutions and you know, under international law had no authority basically to act as a regime change lobbying front. Um, and Carlos Vecchio during the embassy siege would come out every other night or every few days to rally his troops, this mob of seedy characters and violent hooligans um, because they were camping out around the embassy and he'd give them sort of a, a you know, a, a speech to pep them up and keep them going about how proud he and Juan Guaido were of them and how victory was imminent. Um, but it was very clear that Vecchio was acting sort of as a liaison for more powerful interests in the State Department, um, including possibly Elliot Abrams. And then meanwhile, you had the Secret Service who were operating under the auspices of the State Department, sort of facilitating the siege of the embassy uh, without being able to go beyond certain boundaries that the right-wing mob could. And we saw this play out even more recently when Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Mario Diaz-Balart, sort of as the bipartisan face of this new Venezuelan regime change caucus in Congress, did a, a press conference with Carlos Vecchio on the National Mall that was protested by Code Pink and a number of veterans of the Embassy Protection Collective. And during that protest, which was completely nonviolent, Medea Benjamin, the founder of Code Pink, was strangled and choked by Membrio's crew with Vecchio right next to her. I think, you know, there's video that even kind of shows that Vecchio lightly shoves Medea Benjamin away. And somehow Debbie Wasserman Schultz um, gets her arm yanked and she says, she starts um, exclaiming, call the Capitol Police, call the Capitol Police. So, of course, the Venezuelan opposition calls the Capitol Police on Medea Benjamin. This is last month. And Medea's house is surrounded by cops and they attempt to coax her into a patrol car when in fact they had no warrant for her arrest and the video once again was exculpatory and so the police wound up leaving. Now at the scene of this melee, which was brought on by these same violent hooligans who had been weaponized by Carlos Vecchio in the State Department, um, Wyatt Reed, a reporter who's a contributor to the Gray Zone, um, had his phone stolen from his hands by a part a member of, of Carlos Vecchio's team. Uh, a clear act of theft in front of Secret Service, and this character ultimately handed the phone to a Secret Service officer. And then when Wyatt Reed complained and said, uh, you just witnessed a theft in broad daylight, the Secret Service officer said, well, no, he gave the phone to me, bro, just go away, everything's fine. And so the same dynamic was in play. And I can point to so many incidents like this, um, including the day after this phony charge concocted, no, the day of the phony charge concocted by this Venezuelan opposition member, Nilet Pacheco, uh, we've uncovered video of her actually menacing a member of Code Pink literally seconds after that Code Pink member was hit in the head with a megaphone by a violent Venezuelan opposition member. Um, and Secret Service were just right there. So, 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 the, so the point is, you know, in addition to me having, the, I mean, I spent two days in prison, uh, I was defamed online, and the accuser, meanwhile, 
was part of a mob which has been doing everything they accused me of doing. They have been assaulting people. And if you had been down at the embassy, you probably would have experienced either some kind of verbal assault or a physical assault. And the Secret Service would have been there to witness it and do nothing. Well, and what's funny here is that on top of the Secret Service and on top of the Secret Service enabling this, you also had corporate media outlets who were covering this, enabling this as well. And if you were to watch a bunch of different news outlets that were covering this, if they were covering it at all, many people just ignored it. You would have seen the contrary image to what you're presenting, Max, which is that it was Code Pink, uh, this collection of uh, you know a, a a women founded a women led movement of peace activists. It was them, according to the media coverage that we saw, who were uh, harassing the innocent uh, uh, Venezuelan opposition activists who were outside the embassy. And I want to play an example of this. This is from Vice News uh, back in May, and this is this is how they covered the standoff at the embassy. Activists fight their battles through images on social media. The Venezuelans portrayed Code Pink as middle-aged white colonizers. Code Pink portrayed the Venezuelans as a mob of fascists. But Code Pink are pros. A few days ago, we started noticing these people have been uh, getting information, private information about our lives um, and putting it out there as a means of, I guess, scaring us. It's becoming a little, you know, sketchy at this point. Creepy. Do you think, in a way, Code Pink might have brought more attention to the suffering of people in Venezuela? I don't know, because they've been having parties in the embassy. I don't really think they're spending their time talking to Congress people. We tried to get inside, but the activists upstairs wouldn't let us in, saying we were the hipster media arm of the empire. So there we have it, Max. We have uh, a piece there on Vice News, and they refer to Code Pink as pros. And the, 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 the implication there, as, they, as the interview uh, subject says, is that Code Pink has been doxing people, releasing their information online, and putting them in danger. Yeah, the only accurate thing in that uh, piece of propaganda by you know the vice journalist who puffed Richard Spencer. I mean, if you, I, I, there's this notorious interview she gave Richard Spencer, the white nationalist, uh, where it looks like she's you know become entranced by him, um, just as she was entranced by these right wing fascistic opposition members. But the only thing accurate there was the um, quote from the Venezuelan Embassy Protection Collective that Vice is the hipster arm of the empire. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're referring to doxing, but in fact, what you had were um, figures coming out of um, you know, d- corporate entities in DC, um, the World Bank, the, uh, working for arms companies uh, who are part of the Venezuelan diaspora, coming down to the embassy and hectoring uh, people with homophobic rhetoric, with racist rhetoric on camera, uh, very sexist rhetoric, threatening to threatening to rape people. One person um, who was um, kind of acting as Carlos Vecchio's sort of private security actually invaded the embassy one day and started just wrecking the rooms and tearing apart furniture. And you know he had to be gently let out. Um, and uh, my colleague Alex 
Rubenstein uh, published their identities. Uh, with, it didn't publish their home addresses or anything like that, but he just said this is this person who, for example, verbally assaulted a woman and called her a bitch and a whore and threatened to rape her, works at the World Bank, that kind of thing. So, you know, they totally deserve to be held accountable for what they were doing, but no one's home address was published. However, Alina Duarte, who was at the time covering the incident for Telesur, who was a journalist, had her, uh, her was herself hunted down and people attempted to break into her home and she published uh, photos of the uh, of her front door, which someone had tried to jimmy open at the time, and she had been receiving insane levels of threats from the Venezuelan opposition. There's actually video of a member of the Venezuelan opposition uh, saying, you know, I'm white, baby. You look like an Indian. You're an ugly Indian um, because she's mestiza and these people are racist. So that was the kind of atmosphere. And the whole thing was spun by the corporate media that was on the scene, whether it was Vice or the Washington Post. The Washington Post and Marissa Lang took the same angle. And what Marissa Lang did, the Washington Post correspondent, was actually appear at this phony press conference that the Venezuelan opposition held the day after we successfully and nonviolently delivered food and, and sanitary supplies. And take Nyalet Pacheco, the complainant in my case who defamed me, uh, just completely false and libelous claims at her word and reproduce her quote that she was, uh, you know, beaten by several men, uh, at, you know, without any, you know, critical detachment whatsoever. However, when I was arrested, which was a really high profile incident that, you know, anyone who followed this issue was talking about on Twitter. I mean, we had people from around the world uh, expressing their opinion on it and sending solidarity. There was no report from Marissa Lang. There was no report from the Washington Post. My comments were not conveyed, so there was no follow-up, and that was completely deliberate. It's all about spinning this whole siege in favor of a right-wing fascistic mob. And had they been Trump supporters who were just simply white Americans displaying that same behavior, there's absolutely no way they would have received that sympathy from the corporate media, but it's because they are a proxy force for a U.S. regime change operation that has bipartisan support on Capitol Hill and in Washington, that they received this kind of uncritical treatment. And now it's time that they be held accountable because they are actively trying to destroy lives. Uh, they're targeting journalists who've published factual, critical uh, accounting of, you know, for example, Carlos Vecchio's involvement in uh, massive international corruption scandals. Um, they're trying to get people jailed and it needs to be stopped. Well, so meanwhile, uh, let's talk a bit about how the Trump administration's regime change attempt in Venezuela is going, because as your case has just collapsed, it looks like there are new indications that the Venezuelan far-right opposition that their regime change attempt is collapsing as well. There was a report from Bloomberg recently that Trump has lost patience in coup leader Juan Guaido and they're exploring new ways. Uh, members of the Venezuelan opposition have been increasingly critical of Guaido. He's been hit with corruption scandals, as you say. Give us a sense of the state of the regime change attempt right now and, and the disarray inside the far right 
coup leaders trying to lead it? Well, the, the regime change attempt had failed uh, by April 30th, uh, which was the night that Juan Guaido attempted a military coup by busting his mentor, Leopoldo Lopez, who is kind of the original arsonist uh, cult cultivated by the U.S. Uh, to topple Hugo Chavez, busting him out of the, uh, I think, Chilean embassy, and then, you know, attempting to actually lead a military rebellion in the streets of Caracas, which really revealed how little popular support and how little support Guaido had within the military. So by April 30th, it was over. Um, and then, you know, but meanwhile, the, the siege of the embassy was continuing. And what the Venezuelan opposition proceeded to do there was exactly what they were doing to Venezuela, which was lay siege to the country um, and ultimately try to sabotage its electricity um, and sabotage the basic uh, functions of the state to deprive the civilian population of the ability to live. And that's what they've um, proceeded to do, even as Guaido has kind of rode around on the back of a motorcycle aimlessly while he loses credibility and everyone around him um, is kind of exposed as this white collar criminal mafia. Um, we've published uh, multiple pieces by Anya Parampil on Ricardo Hausman, who was Guaido's ambassador to the International American Development Bank. And Hausman has since had to quit because Anya revealed his con financial conflicts of interest at Harvard and he decided you know what, I'd rather stay at Harvard than stay in this fake government that's going nowhere. He had to make that choice. And so Hausman essentially recognized that Guaido was going absolutely nowhere. Um, Guaido, and he, Guaido is you know, stuck in Venezuela. He's very poorly known. Carlos Vecchio, this is someone who's much better connected. He's in DC. He's ferrying back and forth from Miami. And they, he and his crew in the US are trying to take control of Venezuela's most valuable foreign asset, which is Citgo, which controls you know, all of these gas stations you see across the US. Um, it's a multi-billion dollar entity. And what they can do is sell it off to Chevron or another oil company uh, that wants to get, um, you know, or ExxonMobil, where Vecchio was the Venezuelan lawyer. And you know, these are companies that want to get back into Venezuela um, and have been essentially winkled out since Hugo Chavez renationalized the oil industry. Um, they're basically funding, they're, they're basically giving up on ever going back to Venezuela and forming this kind of mafia slash foreign lobbying entity, much like the right-wing Miami Cubans uh, have done uh, and started to do in the 1960s and 70s. And so Vecchio's running around building up this registry of the Venezuelan diaspora in the U.S. They're becoming a voting block that Trump and the Republican Party are recruiting. And they're becoming a decisive factor in 2020 in Florida. So that shows you kind of where things are. And meanwhile, Guaido has been discrediting, has been finally discredited, I think, by this corruption scandal, which shows nine members of his party in the National Assembly basically being paid to lobby to get somebody off the sanctions list. Um, and this was exposed in opposition media, uh, Armando.info, and then it reached Reuters and you know, English language media. But uh, you know, Guaido and his team have no hope. At the same time, what they're doing is they're sabotaging the ability of the moderate, patriotic Venezuelan opposition 
the kind of uh, people who supported Henry, Henry Falcone in the 2018 election against Maduro uh, from negotiating with the Maduro administration and uh, the PSUV party uh, to get out of the crisis. So one thing that Guaido has done uh, in the National Assembly uh, with the Voluntad Popular Party, the Popular Will Party, and Primera Justicia, uh, the Justice First Party, is to sabotage negotiations between the opposition and the government to start repairing the electricity grid. And so they're doing great damage to the country. They continue to harm the civilian population, and they continue to uh, push for these sanctions, which really aren't getting the country anywhere. There's going to have to be some kind of um, entente here, uh, some kind of way of breaking the ice between the moderate opposition and the government, and that means getting these characters out of the way. And speaking of Henry Falcone, the Venezuelan opposition leader, he was infamously threatened with sanctions by the Trump administration when he ran in that 2010 election, which speaks to the level of intensity uh, that the, the Trump administration is bringing to its regime change effort, even threatening people who run in democratic elections in a bid to undermine them. But yeah, to prevent someone from running against Maduro. I mean, just think about that. If you're watching this and you're hearing that for the first time, the U.S. Sank threatened to sanction someone for running against Maduro because they wanted Maduro to run unopposed to be able to say he's a dictator and to delegitimize the whatever what's left of the democratic institutions of Venezuela. They want to push Venezuela into becoming this total security state. So finally, Max, give us a sense of the kind of attacks you faced as of late. You have this case, which has now been dropped, but you were arrested in your home, jailed for 36 hours, having to go through court proceedings. Uh, when you went to Syria recently, you were attacked maliciously online. When you recently appeared on a podcast hosted by Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi, Useful Idiots on Rolling Stone, that led to outrage and people calling for Useful Idiots to be canceled simply because you challenged their uh, whitewashing of the Syria proxy war. Just how much of your time and energy is spent these days on dealing with these kind of attacks on you? Well, I was defamed by this member of the Venezuelan opposition and it resulted in my imprisonment, which was, you know, physically taxing and eye opening. Uh, and it would have resulted in me spending out of pocket at least $10,000 on uh, legal fees. Uh, to exonerate myself if it had gone to trial. So I think that part of the uh, impetus behind this false allegation was exhausting me. It was obviously an act of persecution. And as a result of me being defamed um, through you know, an arrest warrant where I'm accused of beating a 58-year-old immigrant woman within inches from her life, which is just completely ridiculous, um, I was, you know, defamed by the usual suspects who are the regime change fanatics, uh, in the media who have basically wanted to silence me and silence everyone around me and destroy us because we are public publishing inconvenient facts that disrupt their phony regime change narrative, particularly on Syria, um, because the Syria regime change echo chamber has been so well organized. Um, through public relations firms and 
through uh, everything down to direct message groups on Twitter. And so they celebrated my arrest. Uh, one of the biggest fanatics, Oz Katerjee, who barely deserves mention, but will be familiar to anyone watching this, um, partly because he was just fired from the, his lowly position at the Daily Mail that he'd been reduced to for uh, denigrating Peter Hitchens, a Daily Mail columnist from work computers, said he wanted to buy the cops who shackled me a beer uh, and falsely accused me of beating an elderly woman. Um, Idris Ahmad, who somehow is a journalism professor at Stirling University in Scotland, uh, who obsessively attacks and smears me, who's actually called me on my phone, on my cell phone, to threaten me against publishing an investigation on the White Helmets, uh, falsely claimed that I'd beat an elderly woman. Elliot Higgins, the founder of Bellingcat, which is celebrated in the New York Times, even though they're increasingly discredited for their role in the uh, chemical deception in Duma in 2018, which led to the US attacking Syria. This organization, which is funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, the regime change arm of the US government, as well as the UK Foreign Office via the Zinc Network, Elliot Higgins publicized this Medium post, which was intended to embarrass me, which reproduced all of the um, arrest warrants. Uh, you had a uh, f senior editor at Foreign Policy attack me. You had a contributor at T TRT World uh, claim that I beat this woman. You had uh, Danny Gold, uh, regime change, Syria regime change fanatic who used to be at Vice, uh, insisting that I did beat this woman. Uh, when Jeet here, who's an editor at the New Republic, defended me and said this is, you know, a threat to press freedom and very dangerous that a dissident journalist has been, you know, jailed in this way, uh, they just piled on him. And that speaks to the reaction that Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi got at Rolling Stone, where I discussed uh, the Syria proxy war and a lot of the propaganda constructs that had been created to dupe the Western public and specifically the kind of progressive elements in the West into supporting what would have been a completely disastrous military intervention uh, that neoconservatives have wanted for decades. Uh, you know, when I talked about those propaganda constructs, specifically the White Helmets, uh, what was done was an attempt to make an example, not just of me, but of Katie and Matt for hosting me and giving me a sort of mainstream adjacent platform. Nobody challenged a single thing I said. No one challenged me on the facts because no one could. And they never have been able to. Um, and so what they sought to do was to intimidate Katie and Matt, but they wouldn't, Katie wouldn't stand down. She was a complete soldier because she's done the research. She knows that what I'm saying is legitimate. Um, but what they're also trying to do is to send a message to anyone else who might host me that they're going to be attacked by this pack of rabid regime change dogs. Um, and, you know, just going back to the reaction to my arrest, what it shows is that they not only want to silence me, they would like to see me imprisoned. And so they don't believe that someone is innocent before being proven guilty. They want to game the system so that I'll be jailed, as journalists are, for example, in Turkey, uh, where many of them uh, have worked out of. So they are, while claiming to be promoting democracy in Syria or whatever, these are the ultimate authoritarians in our society. They want to utterly erase the gray zone from the internet because of the threat we pose to their narrative. 
And what they seek to do is to cultivate support for regime change wars. So, you know, I take that as a badge of honor. But we also have to recognize the threat that these characters pose. And we have to we have to denounce them as the authoritarians that they are. And we also have to uh, I also want to say that, you know, while I'm cleared from this phony charge, this isn't the only um, threat the gray zone has faced in is facing uh, through uh, regime change fanatics abusing and exploiting the legal system um, to shut down journalists. And we'll be hearing more about that in coming days. But what I but but in you know finally, you know, this whole thing began with a false accusation, and I want it to end with justice. So I'm going to take uh, whatever actions are necessary uh, to get a sense of justice. What could that look like? Uh, we'll, we'll we'll see. Uh, I'm exploring I'm exploring the proper actions, um, but it would look like um, people who defame me being held accountable in a uh, proper fashion. All right, Max Blumenthal, newly cleared of charges in the Venezuelan embassy case, charges that were baseless to begin with. Senior editor of The Gray Zone, author of The Management of Savagery, thanks very much. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks.